Job chapter 12. Tonight we're going to look at the camel. Years ago, I, my grandsons, we had them for a week up in Virginia, and Jeremy and Sarah had gone on their 15th wedding anniversary, and so I had the grandkids, and we uh, brought them to a, like this place up in Virginia where they have all these wild animals. They had musk oxen and, uh, oh, all these things, camels and bison and, and uh, uh, water buffalo, and they just crazy, a lot of African animals. But they apologized to us. They said, now this camel is real friendly. He'll stick his head in the door of the, the window of the bus. You, you rode in a bus. And he slobbers a lot. And I mean, that was the grossest thing. This big camel puts his head in right by me. And the, the slobber just totally grossed me out. I didn't want to see a camel. But uh, what an ugly creature. I mean, the face and the, the lips and everything about a camel is ugly. But boy, are they something else. They're a resourceful creature. And we're going to look at Job chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. If you'd like to stand, read with me these verses. But ask now the beast, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. Or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee. Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this, and his hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. God bless us tonight as we look at one of your creatures and help us to learn something from it. Help us to apply it to our lives. We thank you for everyone that worked hard today to make church possible. Bless them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Camels are mentioned first in Genesis chapter 12, verse 16. We find them throughout Scripture. They're mentioned 57 times in the Old Testament, six times in the New Testament. Jesus mentioned them in reference to the eye of the needle. He said it'd be easier to go, uh, you know, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. They're used in reference to several things in Scripture. Job had 300 camels, the Bible says in Job chapter 1. In 1 Chronicles 5, 20, 21, the Hagarites had to surrender 50,000 camels after battle, uh, after they were defeated. A camel can weigh up to 2,200 pounds. A smaller one weigh about 1,200 pounds. It's a cud-chewing animal. Today we are going to talk about the one-humped camel. While there are two-humped camel, the one-hump is the Arabian camel. And they are able to crossbreed and, and with the two-humped camel, but tonight we're going to look at the one-humped camel. And in many ways, they point to the handiwork of God. God made them for desert travel. They can live in a climate changing from freezing to over 100 degrees in the same day. Their coat reflects the sun and protects the camel from sandstorms. Uh, they, they, the sandstorms blow so hard that the sand actually feels like hornet stings if you're a human being out there and your skin is exposed. But the camel can handle it. Uh, they're able to crossbreed, as I already said, excuse me. They um, can, can reflect the sun. They also, um, uh, can, can their camp, their coats, excuse me, can be used for clothing. The hump consists of fat, which is its food supply during times of difficulty. And the hump of a camel, camel weighs 80 pounds on average. Think of that, 80 pounds in that hump. The nose is always wet, which helps hot air to cool as it goes into its lungs. The nose has a muscle in the nostril which closes partway to keep sand out of its nose uh, while allowing air inside. It's fascinating to see those sandstorms. 
in the middle of the desert, and the people are all wrapped up, and the camel's just plowing on. The head bone of the skull grows over the eyes to protect them, and the feet of the camel spread out uh, like web feet so they can walk on the sand without going down into the sand. Uh, one, designer designed, one designer designed everything that we see in our universe. The Bible said, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're better than the animals because we have a spirit, our inner man. And the animals don't have that. Our designer creates everything. And in some ways, the camel represents the sinner. In other ways, it represents the believer. First of all, camels are unclean. Camels are unclean. If you read in the law, we're not to eat them. They're unclean. People have eaten camels, but uh, the children of Israel were forbidden to eat them by law. And just like sinners, we're fallen. We're a fallen race. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so we are, like the camel, dirty. And without the Lord, we're filthy. We're black as sin. First of all, they're unclean. Second of all, they have a bad disposition. They're, they have a bad temper. I didn't know that about camels until studying this, but anger and wrath, of course, are spoken against in Scripture. The camel can get so mad it can stomp someone to death. And there was a zookeeper in Los Angeles that was stomped to death by a camel. So as a sinner, they're unclean and they have a bad disposition and also they have a misguided loyalty. They say the thing about a camel is not loyal like a dog. If you don't feed your camel, someone else can come along and give it some food and it'll follow some other master because they're just not loyal. And that's like a lot of times people in this world. Often our prayers aren't answered, and you know what we do? We get mad at God, and we turn away from God because He doesn't give us what we want. And in that way, we're like the camel. But second of all, the camels are also like saints in several ways. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. First of all, they're burden bearers. They're burden bearers. In Galatians chapter 6, we are also told to be burden bearers. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, lest thou also be tempted. Then in verse 2 of Galatians chapter 6, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear ye one another's burdens. A camel can carry a man in a pack up to 400 pounds for a journey of 28 miles a day. That's unbelievable. But here it says we're to bear one another's burdens. And the word bear there is the word baros, literally. We get our word burrow from it, which is, of course, a donkey. And so the, the, the camel is, uh, like a donkey, a burden bearer, something that carries a weight. And here we are told to be burden bearers. Bear ye one another's burdens. Now in verse 5 it says for every man shall bear his own burden. Completely different word here. Um, the word here in verse 5 for burden is a word meaning responsibility. The word burden in verse 2 means overload. So in verse 2, we're told to help Christians with an overload, be like a burrow and carry their weight. But in verse 5, everyone has to bear their own responsibility. I think I've explained this maybe a year over a year ago. I shared with you brief mention of this passage. And I said that we can bear one of those burdens, but we can't help each other with responsibilities. 
I mean, you can't discipline my grandkids. You can't, um, you know, take, do my, take my responsibilities. I have certain responsibilities that you just cannot do, and I can't take care of your responsibilities. But we can bear one another's burdens, help each other when we have too much on us, you know. And as believers, we're supposed to be burden bearers. And the camel's a good example of a burden bearer, carrying all that for 28 miles a day. So here, they're burden bearers. And the Hebrew word camel, the Hebrew word actually means one who carries a burden. And in Genesis chapter 24, verse 10, what do we see right away? Uh, the camel carrying a load. And I love the great story of Abraham and Isaac. And uh, we find that the burden bearer carrying a load. And I know it wasn't a camel, but in Genesis 24 it was. So here we have, like the donkey, the camel is a burden bearer. Second of all, camels have vision during the storm. Why is that? God made their eye a certain way. Um, they have an extra eyelid. And when the sand is blowing and the wind is blowing, it can close its it's, it closes its, uh, its inner eyelid and cover up its eyes and still see. And that eyelid keeps all the sand from getting in its eyes. Its big eyelid is still open. It can see, but it has an extra eyelid. It closes, part of it closes during the storm, but it can still see. And as believers, during the storm, we should be able to see. During the storms of life, we should not lose our vision. Look at Psalm 119, verse 18. Psalm 119, verse 18. Psalms, Psalm 119. Now you know this is an acrostic psalm. And what that means is if you look at verse, uh, one, verse, Psalm 119, verse 18, it's in that second section. Let me find it first. But in Psalm chapter 119, each eight verse section, you see at the top of that section a Hebrew letter. The first is Aleph. Every line in those first eight verses begins with Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Look at the next section, verses 9 through 16. Every verse begins with Baith, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You see that in the top of your, above each eight-verse section? And it goes all the way through 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Isn't that interesting? All 22 letters, 22 times 8, 176. Each letter of Hebrew alphabet is, is, is mentioned here. But we're looking at verse 18, which is under Gimel, the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which says, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. You know, God can open our eyes. I like what Jehoshaphat said. He said, Our eyes are upon thee, Lord. He knew that things were bad, but he said our, in this point in his life, he was keeping his eyes on the Lord. And what does Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 say? That when we're running the race, which is again that word agon we mentioned this morning, translated fight, in Timothy it's translated race in Hebrews 12. When we're running the race, it's agonizing, but what do we do to finish the course? Keep our eyes on the Lord. So the camel in that way is, is like the believer, that he, he keeps focused. And he goes in the right direction, even though the person right in the back can't see where he is. The camel just plods on and just keeps going. Third, I thought this was interesting, camels will not drink dirty water. They have to have clean water. Saints of God should hate the filth of the world as well. Love not the world, neither the things of the world. 
But we should love the water of the Word, as Ephesians 5.26 calls it, because it cleanses us. A camel can do without water for eight days. Think of that, eight days. People can't, aren't really supposed to go more than 24 hours. We can really be in trouble. In 72 hours, they say, we don't have a chance. But the camel can go for eight days. And during that time without water, they become weak and lose over 200 pounds. In fact, they have tested camels and found where one of them lost 225 pounds. But in 10 minutes, they can drink 27 gallons of water. Just suck up that water. They just suck it in and gain the weight back. It's amazing how they're restored almost immediately. It's fascinating. They have been known to drink up to 50 gallons of water at one time, but on average, 27. I mean, that's unreal. Uh, the record uh, for a camel going without water was actually 34 days. If the camel did not survive, it later died because its organs had been without water so long. But think of a camel going 34 days, carrying someone in the desert to safety, and then later dying. Fascinating. Cells in their intestines hold water, as do their blood vessels in the stomach. A camel like man, is there, the blood of the camel is 94% water. If we lose 5% of our water, we can go blind. If we lose 10%, we can go insane. I think I've met a few people that have lost some water. If we lose 12%, we can die of heart failure. So water is vitally important to us. A camel can lose 40% of its water and still survive. One long drink, and they're back in business. So for just a few moments, we will be brief tonight. For a few moments, let's think of how we can be like the camel. Are we burden bearers? Every one of us ought to be helping someone in our life. Every one of us ought to have a ministry of helps. A phone call to encourage someone helps bear that burden. We think of the burden bearing and we think of the the load. A.T. Robertson says the word here is like a man going up a hill with a big backpack, just weighted down, and someone else comes along and says, let me help you carry that for a while. You see, we sometimes are in our own little world worrying about our own little problems. Our prayer life tells us a lot about who we are. Because our prayer life should not be about ourselves. It should be about others. When you pray, it shouldn't be, Lord, I want this, I want this, help me with this problem, help me with that problem. Prayer, of course, is a time of asking God. But we should, first of all, praise the Lord in our prayer. Thank the Lord in our prayer. Pray for others, and then last, we pray for ourselves. Pray for our kids and our grandkids, but it's, it's more than just our own little world. What about the people in your world that are suffering and going through hardship? Are you a burden bearer? Do you, uh, are you one who knows a family struggling financially, so you bring them some money? Or bring them some food? Do you bear their burdens? Do you, do you look out for some, when someone's sick? an opportunity to help them. And I'm so proud of our people because so often we do so well. I know people have said to me this week, we have plenty of food, Pastor. Our people will 
just really help out, and I like that. And so maybe you don't need to hear a whole lot about bearing others' burdens, but maybe there's one person here tonight, I don't know who it would be, but maybe you have a neighbor. And maybe even while I'm speaking, the Holy Spirit will put someone on your heart. You need to help. There's always a reason for preaching. I thought, well, I'm going to be short tonight. I said, Lord, my prayer was, Lord, you're going to have to just uh, give me some ideas on what to say because my message is brief. It doesn't happen very often. But the idea of bearing one another's burdens, fulfilling the law of Christ, because the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Or the greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But the second greatest commandment, the practical one, is to love your neighbor as yourself. So are you a burden bearer? Second of all, when you're going through difficulty, do you keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus? Is that a physical thing where we just stare up into the sky? No, it's a spiritual thing in our hearts where we think about the Lord while we're going through these trials and we praise Him for it and we ask Him to guide us and to show us the reason for this difficulty. Why, Lord, am I going through this? There's a reason. You know what we do? We phone a friend and complain about it. We talk to someone about our old mother-in-law. I had a great mother-in-law. But we, we, we take matters into our own hands and say something ugly to someone. We borrow money rather than pray for God to provide. That, all those things are taking your eyes off the Lord. Because if we keep our eyes on the Lord, we're not looking elsewhere for provision and guidance. We're saying, Lord, I have my eyes on you. We don't complain and blame God. I love the great story of Job. He never blamed God. I mean, I think if God took my kids and grandkids, I'd be a little unhappy with the Lord. Even though I'd be with them for eternity, I'd be thinking, what in the world would God take my kids? Why not take me? They had a whole life to live, you know. But keeping our eyes on the Lord means more than staring up into space. It means trusting Him, depending on Him, giving Him the glory even during the difficulty. Third, loving the Word and not the world. Love not the world, neither the things of the world. You know the Scriptures, and I've heard so, many, so much preaching on worldliness and people's different ideas of what worldliness is. Let me tell you, the opposite of loving the world is loving the Word. <laughs> If you love the Word, the things of Scripture, you're not going to have a problem loving the world. You know why people love the world? Because they're not in this. They're not focused in the Word of God. Your devotional life speaks volumes about your heart. If you don't have time to read some Scriptures, years ago I was a young Bible student and I worked at a health spa. Now I need to work out of the health spa, but I worked at one. And I remember going to the health spa and there was a guy who kind of annoyed me. He knew I was going to Tennessee Temple, so every time I walked in there, he would come over and say, what was your devotion today? Guy really got on my nerves. He was really a, a kind of a sarcastic guy, and his point was that you can be going to Bible college all you want to, but it won't help you if you're not in the Word, which is all true, but he was not a spiritual guy himself. 
So it really annoyed me, and I would kind of ignore him when I didn't have a verse. And then I finally started saying, oh, brother, i got to go to work today. That guy's going to come up and ask what my Bible verse is. So I started to get one and get a little devotional in the morning. I was so busy working full-time, going to school full-time, trying to do all these other things in my life. But I got ready for that guy and loaded my guns up for him and started to answer him. He left me alone. But while that was annoying to me, the truth of the matter is we ought to start our day out with the Lord. First thing we ought to do is have some quiet time with God. I've got a book, a devotional book, and in the introduction it says, this is the type of book that you open up and you have your devotions and you spill coffee on the page and you can write on this page. Just spend some enjoyable time in this book. And I went through the book and it was really good for me. But, you know, even though I study hours and hours each week, the most important time of the day is when I get there before the secretary gets there or anyone else calls, and I have that time with God. Personal time, not sermon time. Time where God says, you know, you're kind of a brute sometimes. You're kind of impatient sometimes. And he'll, he'll show me a scripture that so often I'm like, is this real? One time I was having a little attitude about something in my life and I had two devotional books on my desk and both of them dealt with that same attitude. One was Days of Praise and I think the other was Daily Bread. And, and I had this calendar, maybe it was the calendar, and two of them said, dealt with the thing I was going through and I was like, this is unbelievable timing that God would have me have two devotional books. There's also been times, and you know what's happened to you if you're in the Word, where you open up your Bible. Have you ever done just, I'll just open up and read whatever page, and you open it up and you read a page. And that doesn't work very often, but there was a time one time where, bam, it hit exactly, hit home, exactly what I was going through. And folks, thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Our devotional time is vitally important. If you're not spending time with God, you're not what you ought to be. Going to church... Is great. But devotions and prayer, the quiet time with God, and I also challenge you, and I've said this before, when you have your devotions and your prayer time, sing a hymn. Sing a hymn. I don't carry a tune, but sing something to God. Because you're in the mode of lifting God up and worshiping Him. And that's so important in our life, to lift God up. Can God be sad? Can God be mad? Absolutely. It's vitally important that we make God's day <laughs> when we praise Him. That's good for God. God doesn't sin. He doesn't get depressed, take pills. But God can get, get sad because we aren't what we ought to be. It breaks His heart. Israel broke His heart. Sometimes the church breaks His heart. I don't want to be someone who disappoints God. He's my Heavenly Father, and He treats me awfully good. And I want to please Him. I know it's brief tonight. That's all I have. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. God, uh, I know that it was simple tonight, a simple lesson. And next week we'll conclude our series on critters, and, and we'll talk about the ant. But God... The camel. What lessons we learn?
how it can just plow on through the storm, deal with the high winds and the sand and the lack of water and what a great desert animal you created and you placed those animals right in the middle of the desert. For people who have to live in that part of the world, you gave them a great creature, a burden bearer. But Lord, you've also placed us in a part of the world, in a neighborhood, at a workplace, where we can be an oasis to someone who's in the desert, someone who needs a fresh drink of water, we can be that for them. Help us, God, to be a light on a hill, an oasis in the desert, to be the water of life to someone. We're an epistle known and read of all men. We're not written on tables of stone. Thank you, God. But we're written with the Spirit of God on tables of the heart. We're a Bible. Help us to be an encouragement to our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our relatives, our associates. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. <laughs>